You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Episode 83, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's expert will just be me, as we'll be talking about a few things to uh, kind of clean up some stories and give you an update on what's been going on. Obviously, we're dealing with coronavirus in the United States, uh, or COVID-19. It's a serious problem. There's been a lot of things that have happened very quickly. I know personally, speaking for my practice, uh, about 80 to 85% of our practice as an anesthesiologist this is elective work, which means that essentially we have nothing to do. Yeah, this is not unique to my practice. This is a lot of surgeons, other specialists, and most people in medicine are actually just kind of sitting around doing nothing at this point or doing very little. Uh, obviously, those who are being swarmed by uh, COVID patients, namely in like New York, Washington, California, they're very busy, but only part of them. And so I imagine not everybody's busy in those communities. For instance, a dermatologist is probably doesn't have much to do, and they're not able to really practice. The work shortages or stoppages uh, are not only just limited to medicine, obviously they're in all parts of our economy. If you're deemed non-essential, which I think is uh, a misnomer, I think you know most people are essential. You would hope that if you're doing anything in the economy, you're getting paid for it, you're producing some value. And so I would think that you're not actually not essential. Uh, are you important for someone to survive the next day? Well, probably there are very few of us that are actually in that position, even in medicine. Uh, so what is essential, what is not essential? I don't like that term. I think if you're truly not essential, then I'm question why you even have employed at your wherever you are, and that includes the hospitals, as they say. Non-essential employees can stay home. Like, well, what are these people even doing? Why do we even have them on the payroll if they are truly not essential? But, you know, that's just me being, I guess, difficult. So let's start talking first about my story from episode 56, and this story is now a long time ago. This is almost a year ago. 
I had an episode where I had some syncope. I fell in my bathroom. Uh, long story short, I went to my direct primary care physician to get some tests done, uh, namely a cardiac monitor to make sure I didn't have any sort of dysrhythmias or some underlying cardiac problems that may have caused my getting lightheaded. I think at the time I just was sick uh, that, and I was on call and short of sleep. Anyway, I think that was really the problem. Uh, when I went with my doc, she said that she usually did things with cash-based pay, being a DPC doc, direct primary care, and the test cost $250, and you could do that for as long as you want. I think you could do it anywhere from three to seven or maybe even 14 days. So that included the reading of people evaluating the EKG to make sure that there weren't any rhythm disturbances and for the monitor and wearing it, and et cetera. Because you sort of basically rent the monitor. Now, at that time, I had health insurance through my wife's work, which we've always had, and we'd met the deductible for the year, and so my doc said, do you want to just go ahead and just put it, submit to insurance? And so I said, sure. I mean, it made sense. I already met my deductible. It would be reasonable to think that you'll end up probably have it mostly paid for if, with this um, test. So anyway, I had the test. It, of course, came back negative. Uh, and then I didn't hear anything back from anybody for months. I can't remember how many months. Now, remember, this is a $250 test that they're going to cash, paying at you know point of sale. I then received a bill from the company that for the test for $5,000, 2,000% 2, markup. I immediately called my doc and said, this is crazy. You know, what's going on? And she said, oh, well, let me check. She calls the company immediately, and they said, oh, well, this is just what we submit to insurance. And uh, it's denied, and so we have to send you a bill, and then it just gets... We sort of work it out with the insurance company, and then, you know, eventually gets paid. Well, I did a qu some quick math, and most people, when they meet their deductible, it does not mean that things are free. It's, if you know what I mean, it's, uh, you know, once you meet your deductible, you have a certain percentage that you pay of the remaining charges. So, depending on your health plan, maybe 10%, 5%, 20%, whatever. And then there's a certain out-of-pocket maximum that you can't pay, uh, you're not expected to pay beyond, after you paid premiums, obviously, beyond that. So say maybe you have a $5,000 deductible with a $10,000 out-of-pocket maximum. So this would mean that you pay, essentially, $5,000 at the cost of everything that's charged to your insurance provider. And then after you've hit that, then at that point, the insurance company picks up, say, 80%, and then you pay 20% of every charge up to the next $5,000 of your money that you spend. So that's why when you look at your insurance, and this goes all the way back to Dr. Kevin Way Casey when we did the episode on insurance, which is I think episode like 13, you basically want to figure out for your total expenses, assuming you're going to hit your deductible and your full, full out-of-pocket costs, which certainly not everyone does, you want to see how much you can spend maximally for the year. And so you figure out that's going to be you know your premiums times 12, so your monthly premium times 12, and then you add in the amount you spend through the deductible, and then total out-of-pocket maximum. And so that's where you look to try and compare the silver, gold, platinum plans that you know you may get in the marketplace if you're not getting through your employer. Well, anyway, my insurance plan was after you hit your deductible, the insurance company covers 80%. Well, I did some quick math, and 80% of $5,000 leaves me with a bill of $1,000 for a test that I could have gotten for $250 that I paid a point of cash at the beginning. So the insurance is a gigantic ripoff in the sense. And, it, you know, is it the insurance fault? Well, sort of, because they accept these sorts of charges. 
but it's obviously the the company that's selling this test. Uh, they're as complicit as the insurance company in this sort of racket. And the patient, me, gets screwed. Well, I didn't hear anything back from my insurance company for almost a year until just a, maybe about a month ago or two. I can't remember now. And I got the classic explanation of benefits. Now, at this point, my insurance had changed, which will be the next dis- part of the discussion here. But uh, So then I got a bill that basically said, yes, in fact, my my bill, although it wouldn't be that they didn't actually accept the full $5,000, I think it was like $4,800. And so my expectation part of the bill would be $950 or so, something I can't even remember what it is now. But basically $1,000. So I was worse off by $700. I guess you could say I kept the money for a long time. I mean, almost a year before I had to pay anything. And I still have at this point not had to pay. But I'm waiting for that bill to come at some point. Uh, so again, you know, this company is going to get 700. So once my insurance company has paid the company, then the company will bill me the remainder, which is the 20% of that $1,000, the of the $5,000, which is $1,000 about. And then I will be expected to pay the company, the device company, that much money. Well, I called my doctor to tell her the story. She's like, you know, agrees that this is crazy. She calls the company and they said, oh yeah, we often offer a discount once if, at point of sale. So they will at some point bill me and they will, if I pay right away, they'll give me like 70% off. So it'll cost me like two or $300, <laughs> which would have been exactly what I paid before, except this time the company will get the f- previous $4,000 from the insurance company. This is totally insane. This is the way the healthcare system works today. And so this will tie into the next part we're going to discuss. But the the savings you get from the insurance company was actually not even a savings in any way. It was actually cost me way more to get the exact same thing, even though I had the insurance company picking up some of the price because the price was so massively inflated at 2,000% that my share was still more than it would have been had I paid just cash initially and contracted directly to the company. This is... Hard to believe that you have a system that's like this. But I will tell you when I finally get the bill, whatever what happens if I'm able to work this out with my doctor, I would say it's very helpful having a direct primary care doc who's able to sort of be responsive and take care of these things and call the company and, and whatnot. But I would say that this is just one tiny example, and I'm sure most of you have had some sort of episode like this, or maybe you haven't and because you haven't ever thought about it. But I think this is something worth thinking about, that the prices you're paying after insurance may even be more than you would pay cash. Not always. In fact, probably not even often. But with the big ticket items, I think that's entirely possible. And I want to talk next about prescription drugs, because that's the next part of this that I think is a good example of how you're getting ripped off by your insurance company, or at least they're not doing you any favors. And it has been my suspicion for a while And certainly talking to a number of people through this show, uh, specifically Dr. Keith Smith from the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, that the insurance companies are not at all working to protect me or help me, and that they're not providing much service or cost savings, cost containment that you'd hope for if you're paying a premium to these companies to sort of adjudicate these things and get you good deals. And I think it's been best exemplified by me switching away from health insurance entirely. Last November... I convinced my wife, uh, who, you know, we've very traditional kind of plain vanilla people, um, that I thought because of the situation she had at her work and with insurance that we're going to have to switch to, to my insurance through my group, 
which I then we could switch to hers after a year. Long story, but the point is we had about 13 or 14 months where we we're going to have to be switched from her work to my work back to her work. And so I convinced her. I said, hey, listen, let's try a health sharing ministry. I just ta- got done talking to a physician probably about a month before. Uh, family practice stock, normal person, not someone who's any sort of radical or uh, <laughs> ideologue or anything like that. And he uh, has been using a health sharing ministry for probably three or four years. And it specific one is Samaritans. And he said that he's been very pleased with it. He actually had a condition, uh, I think it was like Meniere's disease, and his wife had something where she had it. And the payments for the the process worked really well and it and he's been very pleased in the amount of money he saved he thought was good and he just liked the process and sort of the feel of it a lot more than insurance and so he's very pleased that I thought well maybe I could do this and this opportunity presented itself I thought you know not only can I maybe try this ministry for a year or 14 months however whenever open enrollment is next year probably next December or actually now this December now that we're into 2020 uh, but what can what can the savings really be? Maybe this is something that we'll I'll keep track of to see if it's been a worthwhile financial uh, financially or then also sort of from a cost standpoint, how we feel our health care is being served and just get a better sort of feel and gist of sort of how the process works. And that's what I've been doing. So since November, and we actually technically started October, late October, uh, We've been uh, with Samaritans, which is one of many health-sharing ministries. It's a gigantic one. It's obviously nationwide. It's Christian, as most of them are. Uh, not all of them. I think there's a Jewish one now. I'm not sure what the name of that is. But um, I interviewed Matt Bellis from Liberty uh, Health-Sharing, which was another one that is available. And there are many, many health-sharing ministries. The advantage of Samaritans is just very big. And so you figure with their market capitalization and their size that if something should happen— <laughs> like a pandemic, for instance, that they would be able to have the resources and they'd have enough pool of capital and people that they could sort of work their way through whatever sort of thing befalls people. Um, If they got a lot of cases of cancer, for instance, that it wasn't a small health sharing ministry where maybe there are a thousand people and say, for whatever reason, 25 or 50 people have serious complications from cancer and very expensive medical bills. And then the, the plan can't pay for it. And so the risk with a with the health sharing, which I'd argue is still even a risk in some respects for a health insurance company, but with the health sharing is that for some reason there are unexpected costs. Uh, they go through the roof, and now people can't pay their bills, and then the ministry runs for low on funds, and now people are left with large hospital bills, medical bills that are unexpected, and they are expected to pay. Now, this can absolutely happen for people, obviously, who are uninsured. So it's basically you're uninsured. Uh, but people even who are insured, who then are saddled with gigantic hospital bills that exceed what their plan was allowing. So maybe their their airplane, fixed air ride for their kid who is rushed to the hospital somewhere is not covered. Uh, these things happen all the time. And uh, I know with my wife's podcast, she's talked to a number of families who've been been burdened with not only the loss of a child, but also these medical expenses they thought were covered or were told were covered and then actually weren't. Uh, and then they're, of course, these they're paying these jacked up prices. So I moved to this medical sharing ministry 
And I've been keeping track of costs because I wanted to see if I was making money, losing money on the deal, and then what sort of our care would be. One of the things with the health sharing is now everything you pay for out of pocket, essentially, and then you get reimbursed later. Common expenses like buying medicine, going to a doctor, those actually aren't covered. That being said, if you are going to the doctor with some sort of condition or something you develop, it is covered. Uh, now, I think all the ministries have different rules, at least with Samaritans. I think it's pretty standard in that if you have a pre-existing condition, it will not be covered if you join the ministry. So if you have cancer or diabetes or something like that and you have complications related to that, it will not be covered. This is obviously a problem with the, or something, a consideration at least, when you sign up for this. Uh, if you then... Uh, develop some sort of problem while you're on it, though, that is not pre-existing, you have to pay a certain percentage or a certain amount ahead of time, and then everything beyond that will be covered by the ministry up to a certain value. And so I think right now it's you pay the first $300. So let's say you have to have, you break your arm and you have to go in and, and you have to get a cast and you go get some x-rays and, and it costs like $250. Well, you're expected to pay all $250. But if you then have to go to surgery and your surgery is another $5,000 or so, then you pay $300 and the next $4,700 will be paid for you um, from the ministry. Now they pay up to $250,000. If you're willing to commit to a couple hundred dollars extra per year, you can get unlimited coverage. And so that would cover you for any sort of calamity, obviously. Now the, the viability of this plan, the health sharing ministry is only as good as the fact that people in the ministry can actually pay for all the bills and they manage to keep their costs down, things like that. So, there are a number of things the ministry does to try and limit costs and makes you conscious of things. For one thing, they're not covering medications. So you have to be very conscious about what you're getting for medicines, where you're getting them, how much you're paying. If you're getting any sort of care at the hospital or imaging or things like that, they will ask you to get cash discounts. And so almost every hospital, every clinician pretty much will offer you a cash discount if you pay at time of billing. So if you say you get the bill, you say, hey, I'll pay this right now. What kind of discount can you give you? Because they are allowed to give you the cash discounts as long as it does not exceed what they would get reimbursed with CMS, assuming they're part of Medicare and Medicaid services, which almost every place is right now. Uh, then they can give you usually 10, 15, 20%, just kind of depends on what you're doing, uh, because they'd much rather have that than have to deal with your you know, billing or chasing after you uh, with collections and things like that. So for them, it makes a lot of sense. And in general, their cash charge is far exceeds what they re receive from an insurance company anyway. So for instance, their charge might be $100. They're only getting 54 or 55 cents on the dollar from a commercial payer. So if they're charging you and you're paying 75 or $80, uh, they'll be more than happy to take that uh, right away because not only is it, there's no administrative burden by chasing after you, uh, obviously it's greater than they get through insurance companies. That being said, then the ministry will take that, whatever savings you got, let's say you got the 20% savings, that $20 would then be considered you'd paid that as part of your $300 sort of, we'll call it a deductible or some, I guess you'd say a deductible, that's the first you have to pay and then you pay, you're paid after that. Uh, so anyway, so that's kind of how the ministry works. Obviously you pay a monthly, we'll call it a premium. It's not really a premium because it's not insurance. You basically write a check to some person. And so I've written checks, the one month you write a check to actually the organization to help cover the administrative fees. So the one twelfth of your payments go to cover the CEO, the marketing, all that stuff, all the stuff that runs the ministry, uh, their phone, bank, computer network, etc. And then the next eleven months, you send your check to some person or some couple uh, in the country who's someone had a baby. I had someone I sent it to me for 
uh, had a gallbladder removed, and I can't remember the other one. So they're just you just get the story of what they're doing, and and also interestingly, my wife had a some imaging done for some mammogram. It was abnormal. She had to get some other stuff done uh, to, and everything's fine, but there were some costs incurred through there. So we paid the first $300 and then we got paid back. Uh, I shouldn't say paid back, but we had to pay everything. We got all the cash discounts. We called ahead for the radiology fee, the imaging fee. And then we eventually just paid less for one month and kind of paid ourselves and didn't have to write a check to someone else. Um, so that's sort of how that worked. It did take a number of months. And so when you look at the the way the process has worked, I would say it's been pretty good. You do need to have some sort of doctor probably established. And I think if you have a direct primary care physician, it works really well because um, you have someone there who's an advocate for your expenses, who's finding medications for you. Perhaps they can directly prescribe or and dispense medications, in which case you can see some significant savings there, which I do personally. There's a fee to that. And so anyway, you have to kind of figure out all the costs. And so I will give you sort of an example of what I've been dealing with uh, starting in November. And again, it's hard to know exactly how much things cost. I can tell you how much med certain medications cost for our family through our insurance plan. Um, I assumed with my calculations, because it's just rough, right? I mean, that we'd already met the deductible last year. And so we were getting the discounted rate for medication since we'd already met our deductible. I assume we wouldn't have this year because we really haven't had any huge medical expenses at this point. And so my medication costs are a little bit higher for had we gotten it through our traditional route uh, with our health insurance this year than we would have last year because last year was again the end of the year we'd already been a deductible. But anyway, there's also a tax advantage of getting your insurance through your employer. Now I purchase my insurance through, um, but it basically comes through my business and so I do get some a tax deferral from that. And so depending what tax bracket you are, that can be either bigger or smaller of a, a savings. So what would for me, my family be about $1,300 or so, I think of for a, a premium, it actually comes out to about $845. My, my health sharing ministry costs $530 a month. Uh, I also had administration fee. I have, there was an administrative fee just for the first month. Uh, I pay for my physician, my DPC doc for my family. That costs a little over $100 a month. But I want to give you some idea of the savings. So, you know, when you look at it's $530 plus $110 for my doc a month and then versus $845 that would cost me in premiums, there's not a whole lot of savings there. They're pretty close. I mean, you're saving a little bit on the one side. Uh, either way, you're paying for, for medications. But I want to just give you an example of the difference in medications so we spent, um, we might have a bunch of people with migraines in my family, and so we buy medications. And through getting the medications in my doctor at DPC, I was able to save tons of money. Even after the discounted you know, rates you get from the pharmacist after your insurance plan at the pharmacy, because with my DPC doc, I pay 10% above wholesale. I try and describe this to other people in the hospital. They don't really believe it, but it's true that the amount I pay for on medications is significantly less. Even though I'm paying straight cash, I don't really get any discount. I do use GoodRx at times, but uh, for instance, there's one medication called Zofran, which is an anti-nausea medicine. So when people get migraines, they get sick to stomach, and so we use Zofran. For a dose that I got through my 
my DPC doc for four dollars and seventy cents, and I don't I think it's like thirty tabs or I can't remember what it was now. That same medication at the pharmacy was thirty five dollars. So right there, I saved thirty dollars. Uh, another medication called Zomig, which is um, uh, a triptan, which is helps to fix the headache once you get it. Um, what cost me twenty a little under twenty five dollars at my DPC doc cost one hundred and forty seven dollars at the pharmacy. And that's the lowest cost pharmacy that we could find uh, with our previous health plan. And that was after meeting the deductible. It's actually even more than that earlier in the year because we hadn't met the deductible yet at that point. Maxalt, same thing, $13 versus $46. Uh, some of the medications were the same. Uh, so there were significant savings in the pharmaceuticals. And so that, again, is sort of my point that I was talking about earlier with the imaging or actually with the testing for my heart. It's pretty much... A ripoff that you're not getting any savings. The 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 pharmacy will show savings from the from your insurance company, but it's only because you're paying super jacked up prices and that you're paying way over wholesale. Uh, and so anyway, it, it's really remarkable how much money we save just in medications. Now, if you're not buying any medicine, if you're not getting lots of tests, you're not, then you're not going to notice as much savings with a DPC doc if you're totally healthy. The one thing I would say it's super nice. I have really easy access to my doc. I'm talking to a doctor, which helps a lot. Uh, she knows what she's doing. She's able to take care of problems, just usually through text. I don't really have to go and see her. Uh, we get just drop by her office, pick up the medications, and they're there in one day with those asthma medications with the other things. It just sort of depends. Sometimes we still have to go to the pharmacy where we use a good RX, but overall our expenses are quite a bit lower. And so uh, starting November, so November, December, January, February, March, we're now five months into this experiment. And by my rough calculations, I've probably saved about $2,000. Uh, if this continues, you know, I expect that we'll save probably about five to $6,000 using this method versus our previous uh, method. And that's assuming that we had no other major expenses because um, if we had major expenses, we'd be, you know, piling onto deductible. And I mean, I hope everyone stays at the hospital. I hope everyone stays healthy during this you know, the coronavirus or whatever. Uh, but if that's not the case, then the savings would be even more. I mean, there's without a doubt. Uh, because even though my medications might go up, it's not going to go up that much. And then once you have medications that are specific to a malady, like let's say chemotherapy and stuff, that is actually covered by the health plan, or I should say the, the sharing ministry. So uh, without a doubt, the savings are there. I think it's kind of nice that it forces me to do some things that I normally do before. Uh, it, there are drawbacks. I mean, I mentioned when I, my wife had the testing in end of October, early November, I didn't really know how to do all the form submissions to get reimbursed. And so that was sort of on me. That took me like a month to figure that out. Uh, it wasn't a ton. It was hundred, a couple hundred dollars. Um, but anyway, that took months to get sort of worked out. And so it wasn't until like February that I sort of got the money back. I probably could have gotten back sooner if I knew how I was, what I was doing with the, <laughs> the forms and stuff had to bother to call. Uh, but anyway, um, so that's a little bit delayed and you're expected to pay everything up front. And so, you know, if you're tight in cash, it might be a struggle doing those sorts of things. Um, but you know, the, the, the premiums or that monthly payment is a lot less. I paid extra so that I could get the unlimited coverage because it's not that much extra. Uh, and so if you didn't want to do that, it'd be even less money. Uh, the drug costs, assuming you're working through a DPC doc especially, it's going to be a lot less. Otherwise, hard to know because you, if you're using GoodRx, 
which is a pretty good app. Uh, you're going to get lower prices, probably not much different than you get through an insurance plan. But you know, some insurance plans will give you a copays of like fifteen or twenty dollars if you at a certain point, either throughout the entire plan, if it's an HMO plan, maybe, or sometimes it's after you hit the deductible first. It's hard to know because every plan's totally different, but there might be significant savings from medications. There is increased work. You've got to you know call once you get a bill and say, hey, I want to pay it ahead of time right now so I get the discount. Uh, and so you've got to shop around a little bit, and so you just can't go to any pharmacy willy-nilly. It is kind of cool that you do send money to people. You hear their story. You know why they're having it. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, someone just had a baby, whatever. You can say congratulations. Sometimes it's gallbladder, and so it's Christian ministry, so there's people send notes of prayers or whatever, thanks, and things like that in the mail, which is kind of nice. So overall, I've been very pleased I'll see how we feel about it by the end of the year, but I'm going to continue keeping track of the expenses. I'll give you an update once I get through a full year and tell you sort of what we decided to do as a family because I think right now it looks like it's pretty good. Now, that being said, there's you know some risk with this COVID. If this becomes you know calamity economically, people can't pay their bills, which is entirely possible, uh, or the bills just start racking up like crazy because people are in the ICU care and there's all sorts of extra charges and people are on this who are end up getting very sick. Uh, this is going to be a significant challenge for the ministry. I, I tend to think that it, the same could be said for insurance companies. The only difference is insurance companies would almost certainly get bailed out because they have friends in government. So there maybe you're more protected in that sense with the insurance companies. And so maybe you have a little less to worry about once you hit that out-of-pocket maximum, which might be significant. That's assuming that you do everything with a network, and that's not always the case, and that's a discussion for another day. Well, finally, I'd like to talk about COVID-19, coronavirus. Uh, this does tie into the sharing ministry a little bit because it does make me think about you know what happens to my monthly giving and things like that. But uh, I think you know we talked last week about flattening the curve and concerns that maybe we are delaying this. I don't pretend to know. I think, you know, again, the same problem exists that I felt like last week. We have no denominator. We have no idea how many people have this. And therefore, we have no idea to know how, where the spots are worse, how we ramp this down, how we know we've been successful with our mitigation attempts. And so without any sort of data, it makes it very difficult to make any educated decisions about how to return back to normal. And I think it's important to look at the COVID-19, uh, you know, there are reports that it's better than, it's not as bad as the flu, it's the same as the flu. I think it's pretty clear that it's worse than the flu in the sense that it's, it has a higher fatality rate, it's more, you know, deadly, I guess you'd say. Uh, although in some ways it's interesting because it seems like it has, it's more asymptomatic than the flu. Like young people get it and don't even know they had it, which is really weird. And I don't know, I, I can't quite make heads or tails of that, but it's possible that far more people get the flu too than we realize and are basically asymptomatic. I don't think that's the case, but uh, it makes it very unusual in that sense. And so, again, it's really hard to get a feel for the severity of it, except that it's worse uh, and that it's if you're a sick person or if you're sick and elderly or just elderly, you're at much higher risk for having problems. I mean, the young people who have died are not many, uh, people try and make a big deal about lots of young people dying. They tend to be people who had, like the one soccer coach in Spain, he was someone who had, turned out he had leukemia and did not know it. Uh, so he would have been sick soon. <laughs> he just didn't know it. And so it's kind of tragic in that sense. 
the young phys- young physicians and um, healthcare workers that got sick and sometimes very sick tended to be ones who were working in the nasal cavity. Uh, so people who are doing like endoscopic surgery in the, the nose. So basically where like you imagine the viral load is the biggest in the area in the respiratory tract, especially in the nose with all the, you know, mucus and that stuff. And so maybe aerosolize this stuff. And even if you're proper protection techniques, people are getting infected like everybody in the room got infected. And so maybe the viral load is so large and you're dealing with people who are sick. And so that virus is maybe extra nasty. Maybe it's got a mutation that makes it a little bit worse. I don't know. Uh, So because, you know, there's not much known at this point, but those people seem to be at higher risk. And so people who are working in areas with where the infection be, you're expected to be more present, uh, they're at higher risk. And so that's probably why you're seeing healthcare workers get a little more sick because you're dealing with people who are sick and are get, when you're getting a dose of this virus, you're getting a, t- you're getting a ton of it and not just like a little bit enough to get you sick and the virus kind of get ramped up, but you just get a huge amount of the virus hit you all at once and it maybe just knocks your system down a little bit, makes it harder for you to get a good immune response. Not being an immunologist, I don't understand exactly how all that works, but I suspect it, it's just dependent on how much you get. It's sort of like radiation. You can get a little bit of radiation and it's fine. You get a little bit more, you can get sick. You get a whole lot and it can kill you. And so I don't know, that's probably something to do with that as well. Uh, Are there going to be more deaths than the flu? I mean, it's way behind as far as amount of cases. You look at the amount of cases in China, people who have died, actually considering there are over a billion people in China, not that many people died. I mean, 30, 40,000, I think last I looked is of... March 25th, uh, that may, that obviously will change at some point. And, and so maybe it's not as, maybe it, it's not going to kill as many people. I mean, obviously it overwhelmed healthcare systems. And, and I think that's probably the, the point of the concern right now in healthcare. And I think it's been of the hysteria that's been caused. I mean, one thing is I just don't think the United States is used to having viruses and bad things hit us you know zk people kind of freaked out if you live in florida but most people in the country are like yeah i'm not going to florida or something like that but when it comes to this it's you know of course all over the country so there's that aspect of it but the other aspect is that it's happening all at once you know the flu if the flu happened over a three-week span where everybody got the flu and got severe illness it would crash your medical system as well in fact if you took all the car accidents that occur in the country and space them into just two weeks Again, you'd, you'd overwhelm the medical system and it would cause all kinds of problems. People would unnecessarily die and have, uh, and have problems because there wouldn't be access to healthcare services because it just isn't enough. And so in some ways, uh, I think, yes, it's a bad virus in that sense, but it's partly because just how it's hitting all at once. And so I think that's the main problem. It's not that I think half the country is going to get coronavirus and, you know, some percentage of that's going to end up in the hospital. I don't think that's really what's going to be the problem. It's just that it's all hitting at once. And again, I think once you get past this initial peak, which will be bad, I'm in healthcare right now. I'm doing nothing, but I expect that in the next two to three weeks, we'll be super busy for a couple of weeks and doing non OR stuff. And then the hospitals will return to some sort of steady state where you'll still get at these cases as you get sort of the other end of the bell curve and then that'll probably continue for some time. I mean, whether it's mitigated by warm weather too, maybe that's the case. I'm not sure. It definitely seems like there might be something to that since countries in warmer climates tend to not have as problem, big of problems with this or warmer temperatures like you see Southeast Asia. Maybe it's something else. 
Maybe there's some genetic protection. Who knows? I don't, I don't pretend to understand those things right now, and I don't think anyone knows. But I want to look at problems with this coronavirus and why it's such a big problem in the United States, why we're unable to respond like we would hope to. We're a super rich country. We're the richest country in the world. We have the most advanced economy, super advanced biotech companies. There's every reason to think that if anyone could handle this coronavirus with response to it, with resources, with personnel, with technology and testing, et cetera, it would be the United States. Yet we have been pretty much caught flat-footed in many ways because of a lot of things that are self-inflicted. And those are to blame by the government, by hospitals, group purchasing organizations, regulators, uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, supply chain companies, and the government. <laughs> and I know I mentioned them twice because I think they're doubly uh, at fault here, uh, maybe triply if you include the regulations. So let's just kind of walk through a couple of them and just point out some obvious ones. Certificate of need laws. I've talked about this before in other episodes. Certificate of need says that basically in order to open a business or open some imaging or open some sort of capacity like hospital beds or f floors or, you know, whatever uh, that's related to health care, uh, you have to get permission from the state or some sort of board generally run by your competitors. So if you want to open a new uh, MRI imaging center, you need to get the permission of the current M MRI imaging centers in your state. Well, obviously, they're going to be opposed to that unless they get to open another one of MRI or something like that. And so this is crazy. You can never imagine any sort of other industry that would be that would tolerate this sort of thing. But it exists in healthcare, and it's existed since the 70s. It varies from state to state in what they regulate as far as um, certificate of need laws. They're terrible. They're, they are anti-market, and they're centralized planning. And, but even worse, there's like total cronyism, and it prevents capacity. So right now... You would imagine that you would have other hospitals open, or they'd have other beds available, or maybe other ICUs. That would mean that the current hospitals would have to run differently. They'd have to run smarter, or they'd have to have maybe more excess capacity as they're trying to compete for patients, whatever. Those aren't things I would could possibly know, or anyone could know, which is the whole point of the market, that things, decisions are made by millions of people. There are billions of decisions made every day, and on the margins, things are sort of work themselves out, and supply chains are created and people are able to exchange goods across the world even. But by limiting that, you are limiting the access to a number of things. Imaging. We don't care about imaging with coronavirus, but you're limiting access to hospital beds. That is absolutely be limited by certificate of need laws. You're getting limited by ICU beds, ventilators, equipment that could be used to fight this. These are all being limited because of certificate of need laws. Because of these laws, people are people are going to die. So I want you to think about that. Because everyone talks about regulations as always saving lives or protecting lives. But in this case, without a doubt, certificate of need laws are leading to deaths. Now, not in every state, because some states don't have certificate of need laws that would are relevant to this. But almost certainly, when it comes to testing facilities, laboratories, whatever, uh, that is 100% limiting our ability to figure out what to do in this virus, in this outbreak, and to fix it. And so... Without a doubt, certificate of need laws need to end, and they need to end yesterday. Secondly, the U.S. imposed a lot of tariffs on China. That was part of the Trump administration's grand plan to protect our country. I don't know why any physicians support tariffs, because they're absolutely harming our ability to get things through the supply chain. They caused shortages. 
that started two years ago. You drove up the cost of materials and testing equipment, masks, whatever, by about 16%. And so, well, it caused a 16% drop in in, um, goods flowing from China. That was not made up for in other places in this country or other parts of the world. Yes, we've been ordering more stuff from other parts of the world, but it was the continued increase in the percentage increase in those areas was a steady state that had been increasing anyway before. So it's not like you replaced the, what you lost in China with other places in the world. We just had less stuff. And you felt this acutely in the hospitals all over before coronavirus even hit. You would have a little bit more difficulty finding masks or finding gowns or other things. And this is because of the tariffs. Now, it didn't cause all the shortages, but it contributed to on the margin. And so when you start looking at the, the causes and problems caused by this coronavirus, Part of the blame has to go to the Trump administration and this crazy notion that we want to try and punish China uh, with tariffs. I think there are plenty of reasons to punish China for other reasons, but just for economic reasons, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, this because this absolutely hurt hurt Americans and probably cost us a number of lives as we were unable to respond effectively or have enough equipment to protect ourselves. And as someone on the front lines, I can tell you, you know, we can't get masks, we can't get gowns. It's terrible. It's crazy for an advanced economy not to have this stuff laying around. License your laws and certifications. We've lost a lot of doctors and people who could treat people because they didn't want to do their certification, their board certification. I know most people <laughs> retire rather than start another cycle of the uh, maintenance of certification. In fact, the certification boards even realized that in the last week they've issued they've issued sort of stays of execution saying if you were up for this year. You've got an exemption, although it's kind of funny how they word it. Uh, it turns out they don't believe the certification is that necessary either. In a time of or this testing and all this stuff that they have physicians do, they also probably recognize that they're going to have a bunch of torches and pitchforks of physicians storming their offices because guess what? These physicians are going to be financially hit hard this this next three four months. You're not going to be able to make up this volume over the next the rest of the year. That's just revenue that's lost, and that's lost income. And that's lost money that, you know, when you have a, a licensure um, or a certification board that's charging a couple thousand dollars a year, well, that's going to be a hard hit by, for physicians to take. And they're not going to take it very, very well. And so it is interesting. I mean, I think they'll still continue, but it's, um, it's definitely caused people to leave the market. And there are less people to take care of you and me because of these, because of these certification rules and laws. And it's terrible. And so those need to end. Uh, licensure restrictions same thing i think you know we have to re- rethink what we're what we're licensing and if we're actually protecting anybody with this license i mean most of it is a protection of trade and those absolutely need to be looked at fda regulations and this is absolutely without a doubt a real problem as i discussed back with mary ruart in episode long long ago when it comes to the fda the fda issues regulations and they test on basis of eff- efficacy most people think the fda's main mission is to prevent dangerous drugs from making to the market. Well, that is that is the initial thrust of the FDA back in the 1920s. And that was their mission up until, I think, the 70s or so, when the whole uh, scare with um, thalidomide uh, happened with the birth defects of the um, anti-nausea for pregnant women uh, medication hit the market. And there were some birth defects. What was interesting is the FDA didn't stop it then even though that was its sole mission. Instead, it changed its mission to one of efficacy. So it said your drug had to prove it's, it's, whether it's efficacious, whether it's effective. And so 
what used to cost, I don't know what percentage of drug costs were research, and now it would be two, three, four times as much because you had to run huge, massive, extensive trials, and it delayed the it delayed drugs from making it into the market. This causes real problems because some of those are life-saving drugs and medications. So if now you've got to wait two years, well, some people don't have two years to live, and they die waiting for that medication to make it to market. So the FDA was essentially basically killing people. I mean, they would say it was in the it was in the um, to prevent sugar pills or ineffective medicines from making it to the market. But the marketplace had already figured out ways of figuring out whether medications worked or not. And if they were found to be to work, people continued using them. If they were found not to be helpful and just caused more side effects, people figured that out usually pretty quickly and they stopped using them. This wasn't that complicated. Yet the FDA went about it, was given a new mandate, and has basically stuck to that mandate. And it is a huge impediment to new drugs making it to the market oftentimes life-saving or life-improving medications. You see medications that work fine over in other parts of the world, and yet we're unable to use them. I look at one medication called um, Sugamidex. Now, this is a medication no one has heard of unless you're in the anesthesia realm. Well, we use non-depolarizing muscle relaxants, namely rocuronium, to paralyze patients so you put a breathing tube in. On very, very rare occasions... When you go to attempt to put the breathing tube in, you're unable to get it in. And so you need someone to be able to breathe on their own. Because if they don't breathe on their own, obviously, they will die. Well, this medication was, was available for years in Europe and was being used effectively and safely. Yet the FDA prevented its, prevented its um, use in the United States for a couple years. So this is a medication that reverses that paralysis immediately. It turns a situation that is really bad into maybe make it salvageable and someone can survive. And instead, now these people had no way of reversing the muscle relaxant, the paralysis, and they would die if they weren't able to, you weren't able to ventilate and breathe for them. I don't know how many people died because this medication was prevented from getting to the market here in the United States, but it certainly made anesthesia practice less safe. And it is safer today because of this medicine than it was before. That's just one tiny example of many examples. I'm sure if I had a couple oncologists on, they could tell me all sorts of different uh, cancer medications they use that treat tumors that you know extend people's lives or maybe even cure them. But those have been prevented from making it to market because of the FDA's insane, I would say, efficacy uh, trials. And what does it prove? It doesn't prove anything. There's no reason to have these sorts of these sorts of regulations. But also. Along these same lines, the FDA also looks for efficaciousness of testing. And so guess why we're unable to have any tests in this country, even though they've been shown to be effective and work other parts of the world? Because the FDA had to test them and make sure they were working. Well, that's crazy. You can have the market and you can have physicians and people figure out if tests are, work, are useful or not. You compare the tests against each other, see which one's more effective, has better, better sensitivity and specificity. You don't need the FDA to do these things because guess what happened? The FDA was dragging its feet, insisting on doing all this testing, and then we were unprepared for what was obviously coming from Asia in this virus. And we saw what was happening, and we were just unable to get produce any tests in time so that we were basically operating blind as far as the country. Other countries are completely tested their entire population, but the United States is way behind. We're just now starting to catch up, and guess why? Because the FDA eased the regulations and said we're not going to have to test all these things. Or they're just, you know, approving everything right away. Had the FDA had that approach to begin with and not had this 
this insistence on doing efficaciousness, this would not be a problem. So the FDA has probably, again, been the, been responsible for the deaths of a number of Americans, or certainly uh, economic calamity as we're starting shutting everything down because we're operating without any idea where the virus is, how extensive it is, uh, or you know what's going on. Uh, this is a real problem, and you know we're paying for this this agency, and it's totally failing us in this extent. And Congress needs to rethink and change this. It won't, but that's what it needs to do. Group purchasing organizations, we talked about this a number of times. Because of the, the nature of the laws and the way they operate and their sort of how they have their kickbacks or rebates and their protections through Congress, uh, they basically severely restrict the amount of competitors who can enter any market in not only the production of medications, pharmaceuticals, but also all sorts of other things and devices and masks and things like that. That is somewhat contributed also by the FDA with their excessive regulatory um, burden on, you know, whether you something's hospital grade or not. For instance, these N95 respirators that people or masks that people have been using. It's kind of, I mean, it's a fairly simple mask. It, uh, but they use this industrial purpose all the time. But you're not allowed to use that in the hospital. It's the exact same mask, but it has not been, you know, deemed hospital grade. And so they were sitting idle at these places and unable to be used by healthcare workers. Those regulations were eased and they were allowed to use it. But again, these regulations are not done in any way to help people or protect people. These have been only th these have only been in place and they've been harming people. So I think if if a regulation is not important now, there's no reason it was important five you know <clears throat> five minutes ago. And so these need to be restricted and or needed to be repealed as well as looking at these group purchasing organizations and why they have so much power, we need to restrict a lot of their power too. The information that's been freely flowing through the internet, Twitter, aside from being lots of bad information, some good information, uh, but it's, it has actually helped us in fighting this disease in areas where you're not allowed to have the free flow of information, like in China initially, where they're arresting people and making them apologize and saying, oh, everything I said about this mysterious disease is a lie. It impeded the ability for people to respond appropriately socially to an outbreak. Normally, especially in Asia, they're sort of used to this sort of thing. When a new virus is, there's word of a new virus that's coming, they start behaving differently. They don't gather in big, large groups. They wear masks. They do things to mitigate the, the chance of this disease spreading. But if you're suppressing the information that there's anything going on, People act like there's nothing go like there's nothing going on, and then the spread is much worse. It made what may have been something that could have been contained into something that was unable to be contained. Our own government did the same thing. We had a number of doctors in Washington who started noticing some unusual behavior, uh, unusual things going on. They started testing and finding that there was some what they believed was the coronavirus already present in the United States, but they were you know, thwarted by our government agencies who said you had to shut down and stop this testing. Eventually, they just defied the orders and started doing it anyway, and because they were able to go out in social media, because they have First Amendment rights to do that, they are able to get their story out. People kind of figured out that actually they were right. I mean, had they made these statements and then found out to be wrong, they would have looked foolish. Uh, so by having that ability to get the information out, unlike they do in China, we're able to sort of start doing something in this country to respond to it. And so it's very important that you have the free flow of information even though a lot of it's bad and inflammatory and ridiculous, it turns out that most of the time, the right thing sort of makes its way out. Now, we don't always agree with it, and sometimes you 
do the wrong thing for a little while, but eventually people's behavior improves. And finally, with this coronavirus, you know, the there's been a lot of talk about is the cure worse than the disease. I don't know. And I've the complete shutdown of everything, schools, businesses, all social gatherings, etc. Uh, you know, maybe it's too little too late. Maybe what should have happened is we should have been testing extensively beforehand, but of course we were unable to because of uh, government restrictions. Uh, and had we been able to monitor this better ahead of time, and trust me, there are plenty of people outside the government, universities, etc., who are always looking to do research papers, who are more than happy to do all kinds of widespread epidemiological testing uh, in the event that you know some disease is coming to our shores. You don't need the FDA or the CDC to do this. It will just get done by other private actors. But anyway, had we had those opportunities, then maybe we wouldn't have had the crazy reaction we've had now. Now, by shutting everything down, I wonder if this is the right move. And I don't, the economic implications of it are significant. You're seeing a transformation of the U.S. economy. There are lots of things that are introduced in this stimulus bill that I think, I don't even know as I'm recording this uh, around noon on Wednesday, the, the 25th of March. I don't think we really know everything that's in there. But we do know there's a lot of stuff in there that's, of course, of no benefit at all to anyone who has coronavirus or to response to it. It's just sort of like, like any sort of bill out of Congress. It's $2 trillion of just pork barrel spending, lots of bailouts of various industries, uh, all kinds of crazy changes to regulate regulations of labor laws. Um, there's stuff on abortion. There's stuff on you know funding theaters, all kinds of things that have nothing to do with anything <laughs> that should be passed in. A relief bill, of course, you call it a coronavirus stimulus relief bill, and you put anything in there and people feel obligated to vote for it because no one reads past the headlines or the title of the bill, oftentimes, aka the Patriot Act. So that will be something we have to pay for. I don't know how the dollar survives. I don't know with inflation. I don't know how you pay for this with trillion-dollar deficits, and um, our debt is already enormous. At some point, this money from the future will have to be paid for. And you can either pay for it through extreme economic growth, which is less likely the more restrictions you put on businesses and the more taxes you impose on people, you're going to limit economic activity. It's going to be hard to get the growth that you want. Um, and so I can only hope that somehow this all works its way out. But I worry that the economic implications of this might be more significant than what would have been the health impacts that are going to be grave for a number of people. And I don't mean to minimize that. I think, you know, what we're dealing with the hospitals and it's going to be pretty bad for a while, uh, but we'll get through this and eventually this virus will pass. We'll get a vaccine at the end of this year, perhaps, or um, maybe early next year. I'm not sure. We're already finding more treatments for this. So hopefully we can sort of figure out ways of taking care of this problem. But the other problems are ones that were going to be with us for a long time and forcibly keeping people out of work is maybe not the best strategy. I mean, you look at other countries as South Korea, Taiwan, they had non-whole country shutdowns of their economies and were able to weather the storm and not have you know, massive amounts of deaths. Uh, they had some, but it wasn't a, you know, a health calamity like it, has, like it is in the verge of doing it in some other places. So I just think there are some things we could, we could do we, don't, we have a little bit too much hysteria, and because we don't really have any idea how many people have this or where it is, uh, people are acting appropriately in that the sense they assume everybody has it, 
when in fact you just don't know and unless we know those things we're going to have these sort of ridiculous kind of responses and ones that are not healthy i hope you are staying healthy you maintain your social distance i trust that you are hanging in there and hopefully this podcast gives you a little glimmer of hope uh, at least some calls to action things to think about and um i don't mean this for this to be negative because i think you know in a, about two months we'll be things will be a lot better but i think we need to look at the policies and things in place that have made this infection and this contagion worse and think about ways that we can make it better so the next time something happens we're better prepared because the one advantage we have as a country is we're super rich we're technologically innovative and we're advanced and for those reasons we should have the resources we need and the ability to respond to things quickly that's the advantage of being rich when you're poor there's nothing you can do because you're based at the mercy of whatever limited resources you have but when you have as many resources as we do in this country you should be able to respond much better the show notes for this show will be found at theparadox.com slash 083 please subscribe if you have not already share this with your friends and i hope you have a great week i hope you get back to work soon i hope you're able to spend quality time with your family or wherever you are if you're a healthcare worker stay safe we'll make it through this it's all going to be okay we just need to kind of put our head down for a couple weeks and we'll get through this we'll talk later thanks for listening to the paradox if you like what the doc is doing please subscribe and leave a review on itunes or stitcher and share the show with your friends Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.